welcome to the show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Verta Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, and Preacher. And today we are covering Preacher issues 64 through 66. Right, the final three issues of Preacher. The final three. The conclusion of the conclusion. So, we have been in the final story arc for a while, because it ran for a number of issues. Let's briefly recap, I think, what's happened so far. Jesse tipped off the grail that he was going to be in San Antone, and and he told him when as well. Yeah, and Star has basically burned all his bridges and thrown away the grail's mission entirely to be in San Antone at the right time and kill Jesse. As revenge for the many comedic disfigurements he's suffered in this series. Right. In addition to meeting up with the Grail, he also has plans to meet up with Cassidy. Yeah, he learned Cassidy was no good and basically challenged him to meet in San Antonio in one month, which is just about now, for a final showdown. Jesse also contacted the Saint of Killers with a mysterious plan to get back at God. And several other more minor characters were basically written out of the comic. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, Arseface's story resolved. He met Lori, who does not perceive him as ugly. He got himself a job shoveling shit. Mm-hmm. And he intends to live happily ever after. One more important note is that, concerned about all the various supernatural big bads that he's about to go up against, Jesse fucking drugged Tulip again. <laughs> yep. Well, did he drug her the first time? He didn't drug her the first time. This time he drugged her. He left her behind again. Yep, he tricked her. Which brings us to Preacher number 64. If I knew the way, I'd go back home. The title comes from a 1972 Paul Williams song, Where Do I Go From Here? It was also covered by Elvis the following year. Paul Williams is totally underrated. Yeah. This issue is written by Garth Ennis, with art by Steve Dillon and colors by Pamela Rambo. It's lettered by Clem Robbins and edited by Axel Alonso. And the cover, as usual, is by Glenn Fabry. And on this cover, we have a younger, cleaner-looking Cassidy, I think that's supposed to be. Oh, you think he's supposed to be younger and cleaner-looking? I just figured it was a, a detailed drawing that doesn't look quite, quite like Cassidy. He looks a little younger and cleaner than I, I would expect. Yeah, he's had some decades of hard living. So yeah, Cassidy's face over the bar with Cassidy and Jesse sitting at it. See, this looks like a guy, this looks like a guy who you'd be afraid to get in a fight with. Okay. Whereas Cassidy is like, if he didn't have vampire strength, like, anyone could whoop his ass. <laughs> you know? Like, no, I think that's getting ahead of ourselves. Maybe I'm foreshadowing a little hard here, but no, like, Cassidy is like, you know, the only reason he's not weak is vampire strength. Mm -hmm. You know? This actually looks like a tough dude. Okay. Noteworthy point. Do you think this title is referring to Cassidy? How he can't go back to being the innocent that he was once? Oh yeah, I think it is. I think it's specifically referring to the moral event horizon that he has crossed. Mm -hmm. And his kind of... His, his vague desire to be a better person. Mm -hmm. But he has absolutely no idea how to implement that. <laughs> yeah. And if he did know how, he'd probably, you know, keep procrastinating it. <laughs> <laughs> One more wee pint. <laughs> I'll be a good person tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. We open up on Hondo's bar, which is where Jesse told Cassidy to meet him. 
Cassidy is sitting here in the bar. Jesse's not here yet. And he is describing the plot of the movie Breaker Morant to no one in particular. There's a drunk beside him, but that guy's asleep. It's fucking deadly. It's got Edward Woodward, you know, from The Equalizer. And Brian Brown. Because what Australian film is complete without Brian Brown? And it's set in the Boer War. And they're both on trial for murder. Breaker Morant is a 1980 film by Bruce Beresford. It's based, though, on real events that took place in 1901 and 02 during the Boer War. Yes, indeed. That could probably have been saved for the show notes. I don't know. I like to drop these pieces of wisdom. You like to drop some nuggets? <laughs> oh, man. Got any nuggets? I did bring you nuggets the last time I was here, so... Did you? You did! That's right. They were Wendy's nuggets. Yeah. <laughs> this is way off topic. <laughs> Denver nuggets. <laughs> Edward Woodward and Brian Brown are on trial for a murder, which they actually committed. They're found guilty. The night before their execution, one of Woodward's friends, Woodward is the actor, not the character, of course, tries to break him out, but he refuses to go. His friend says he can see the world. Nah, he says. He's seen it. Now, as he's telling this story, Cassidy kind of stammers at one point, and that is because Jesse Custer has walked in the door. That's right. He approaches. I'll get this. I can buy my own whiskey. Cassidy asks for a cigarette, perhaps pre-execution. You bring your own lighter. And then Cassidy changes the subject to how Jesse survived falling out of that goddamn plane. Good lord saved my ass. Kind of my last chance to back off and leave him be. Yeah, they chat about this for a minute, but then Jesse says, We here to talk about me. Meanwhile, in the motel room, Tulip is awoken by barking. Yes, it's Skeeter. He's the best good dog. <laughs> No! she exclaims as she finds a note from Jesse and realizes what has happened. Yep, she's pissed. Cassidy guesses that Jesse must have gotten the whole story about his sordid past from Sally. He says Sally was always too smart for him. She gave him a smile that said she knew him and not to try it. So I guess the point is you were never close, so she didn't get hooked on smack with you trying to drink her blood to stay alive. Didn't get her jaw broken either. And at this... Cassidy makes a sour expression. Yeah, he keeps trying to connect and Jesse keeps not having it. So Cassidy kind of, he kind of tries to level with Jesse. This here. is his mea culpa moment. Well, yeah, sort of mea culpa, but he's still kind of casting himself as like, as a victim, even if only of himself. Mm -hmm. Do you think hitting a woman is the kind of thing you just walk away from? Because it's fucking wild not. Not for me, anyway. It stays with you. It comes back to you and you, in your greatest moments, it hangs there fucking clawing at you. Out of nowhere, you'll remember the impact of your fist on some wee girl's jaw and how it traveled up your arm to your shoulder. And you'll remember you're fucking damned. There's a throwaway line in there where he mentions that he saw his son born, or his kid born, and it turns out that he's had some kids and that just never came up before. Presumably lost touch with their mothers. He's that kind of a rolling stone. But yeah, wherever he hangs his denim cutoff is his home. Not presumably, he says he's lost touch with their mothers. Oh, I, I, I wrote here that I, that I assumed that it had happened after he became a vampire, because that happened when he was like 16. Oh, yeah, no. There's no way that he wasn't like a virgin <laughs> when, he, when he died. Yeah, absolutely. Which means that a, a vampire in this verse can apparently have kids. They're alive enough for that. Right. You remember that episode of Angel with the half-vampire? Well, he wasn't really a half-vampire, he was a vampire with a soul. But not Angel. Spike? <laughs> I guess they went back to that well a couple of times. I meant um, the World War II episode. 
in the Buffy comic book series that's running now. Yeah. Xander is a vampire with a soul. No, okay. The the outcome of the first, I say first big story arc, but no, the first story arc, like the first trade of the new Buffy series. Oh, this is in the re the relaunched series. Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, not season 9, 10, 11 or whatever. This is in the okay. the rebooted series where they're back in high school. It's all the same characters, but all the circumstances have changed that's, or are going that's a to really change. fucking huge change really early on right like barely into his relationship with the scoobies xander gets turned by drusilla and willow sacrifices a part of her soul to prevent Aww. to prevent him from not having a soul that just had a very like x-men moment where it's like yes there's a new way to bang these pieces together and it still works yeah exactly the Storyline going on in Angel is kind of cool, too, because it's like, you know all these characters, mm -hmm. and like, so does the bad guy, okay. for some reason. So it's like, there's all these people who Angel hasn't met yet, and like, the bad guy's trying to kill them, and he has to like, stay one step ahead and like, save all these strangers. The bad guy is like, trying to assassinate the future cast members of Angel. Right, the, the bad guy's like, <laughs> trying to assassinate like, Fred and Gunn and stuff, like, before, we, before we ever meet them. <laughs> It's what kind you, of neat. That's that's by Brian Edward Hill. What do you want to bet it turns out to be Dr. Manhattan? <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, we should probably talk about this DC comic. We probably should. He talks about uh, how he knows that hitting women was wrong, but he says, you wake up the next morning and you're still here, so what can you do? You try to do more good than bad, and one day you start to believe in a second chance. And then you do it again. And at this, we know that Jesse's right, because Cassidy looks down in shame. Yeah, he looks sick. He's really, like, compellingly full of guilt, even though he also hasn't become a better person. Well, maybe a little better. He, he hasn't hit a woman since the time with D. Oh, uh, he didn't hit Tulip, but he did very bad things to Tulip. He threatened her, for yeah, sure. But he is absolutely, I guess he is at least here to get to, 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 to face his medicine, so to speak. He explains what we already know. Well, what we already know if we read Blood and Whiskey, not if we've only been reading the numbered issues in the series and not the specials. Actually, I'm not sure if this is the first time we really know what happened to these specifically. Well, anyways, he got involved with Les Enfants du Sang in New Orleans, yep. and he met Dee right after that, and he sort of was putting his redemption on her. He hit Dee in the side of the head and her eyeball burst. And he explains that from then on he was basically miserable and solitary until he met Jesse and Tulip. But what are you supposed to do, huh? You can't live like a hermit. You start to believe in a second chance. Well, yeah, you can't feel damned forever. Jesse is sort of mocking Cassidy here. Right. Because he's talking about, like, he talks about how he slowly learned to give himself a second chance, and then he screwed up again, and Jesse is, like, mockingly, like, yeah, and then you slowly learn to give yourself another chance. Like, Cassidy is going to give himself infinite chances because he's not, you know, accountable. Yeah. Do you remember the speech from Chernobyl about, like, the first time you kill somebody, you think that you're going to die, but then you wake up the next day and you didn't die? Yeah. It's it's very similar to this. So Cassidy kind of talks about, like, how he was, he was racked with guilt for, like, decades at a time mm -hmm. for what he did to these women... Which I think that that guilt is only valuable if he does something with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it doesn't make me feel bad for him. It's totally right that he should feel that bad. Mm -hmm. And his guilt is for nothing, nothing but like self-pity. 
if he doesn't do something with it, like either turn himself into a better person or, you know, <laughs> say hello to the sunrise, you know, like, <laughs> like do something, but don't just like keep, don't just keep hanging out being a piece of shit, <laughs> you know? Right. Just like, well, I survived, so I guess I'm still here, so I'll try to do better. But if I don't, that's what happened before. Right. And I think there's probably a level. There's probably a level where his guilt ties into his chronic drug addiction as well. Yeah. And then that gives him the excuse to to live the party lifestyle, which leads back into the bad things that he does. Right. But when Cassidy broaches the subject of Tulip, Jesse says, with an annoyed look on his face, Well, now we're getting to it. Meanwhile... Hoover and Featherstone are getting drunk in the hotel room. Yeah, what are they getting drunk on? It looks I, like a wine bottle, but it's something white. I can't read are the they, label. Are they getting drunk on Baileys or I something? I thought it was supposed to be vodka. Oh, oh, maybe it's clear, not white. That's true. They have a little conversation here about swearing, about the fact that Hoover still refuses to say motherfucker. Featherstone says she likes swearing. They're just words. They don't hurt anything. But they're the one freedom that you'll always have that can't be taken away from you. What did you do before you joined the Grail? She asks. Well, I was a lifeguard at a swimming pool, actually. Were you any good? Not really. Someone drowned. Featherstone explains that she was a Sunday school teacher, and she was great at it. Until one day, she came home to find her sister dead in the apartment that they shared. She had been raped and murdered. Right. And no one was ever caught. She says she didn't give up on God. She just decided at that moment that his plan needed a little bit of a helping hand. Right. She said she was never naive enough to not... She was never naive enough to be surprised that horrible things happen. Mm -hmm. She just decided to commit herself to changing the world here. And you can see how that really leads her to the admiration that she develops for Hare Star for having the strength to change the world. Because Hare Star, his quest also kind of began with like... He saw violence and chaos. Yeah, a senseless act of violence. And decided that something had to be done about it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Featherstone put her faith first in the Grail, then in Star's conspiracy within the Grail, and finally in Star himself. And she has now realized that that faith is misplaced. Star has lost his way. Why kill Custer, supposedly our substitute savior, why instead make the assassination vital to the grand plan, at least according to that crap he fed the Samson troops, and come to think of it, Armageddon can wait? What have we really been a part of for all this time? Back at Hondo's, I suppose what I wanted, really, was for her to grow to like me more and more, and eventually just, well, choose me. But for it to be okay with you anyway, so we'd all still be mates. Well, that has to be about the dumbest, most pathetic thing I heard in my entire life. I know! Girls like Tulip are one in a million, right? You don't need me to tell you that, but... But girls like Tulip never seem to go for me. So what else can you do but stick a knife in your buddy's back, right? So this is, like... I kind of see his point and I don't see it. Mm -hmm. Yes, Tulip is awesome. Yeah. Like, we love Tulip. More on that later. But I don't kind of like this idea. I think he's sort of devaluing the awesome women that he was with. Okay. You know? Like, it seems like Dee and Sally and whoever, you know, he was hanging out with in New York at the turn of the century. Or not the turn of the century, but because he wasn't alive yet at the turn of the century. The, the Rosie 20. the Riveters that he was sponging off of in New York? Yeah, and Dee in New Orleans. It seems like they are all, like, awesome women, mm -hmm. you know, that would have been, like, great partners. 
So this idea that, like, if only someone really awesome like Tulip could have gone for me, you know? Yeah. Then I wouldn't be such a miserable sack of shit. I just, I don't like, I don't like the way that by, like, kind of putting all his eggs in Tulip's basket, he's devaluing the women that he hurt in the past. Okay, I see what you mean. Although the series itself is kind of guilty of holding Tulip and Jesse to a higher standard than anybody else in the world. Well, and especially there's sort of a sexist thing of, like, Tulip isn't like other women. Yeah, yeah. There's also a level, though, on which Cassidy is a destructive force. And if he doesn't feel that he's met a sufficiently awesome woman, maybe it's because he destroys people that he comes in contact with. Right, yeah, exactly. And that's well, and that's kind of my point, is that, like, you know, Dee and the girls that he was hanging out with in New York were all kind of, like, awesome people. Like, awesome, yeah. powerful people in their own way. You know, with Dee, we really see it. Mm-hmm. So Jessie goes on, recapping the story of Cassidy and Tulip. She wouldn't choose Cassidy, but then one day Jessie died, or at least he fell out of the plane and they thought he was dead, and then all Cassidy had to do was keep Tulip doped up. Cassidy makes excuses. I mean, I thought you were dead. We both thought you were dead. And she asked me for the bleeding pills. Fuck you. Cassidy gets mad and says Jessie doesn't know the half of his crimes. Can you imagine a solid fucking decade of addiction, sinking lower and lower, getting worse each day, till you realize there's no ground floor in hell? Way you make it sound, you had all of that done to you, instead of you being the one that did it. So at this point, Cassidy kind of knows he's out of excuses, and after a long pause, he asks, What next? Well, I've been thinking about that, and I reckon what I'm gonna do is take you out in the street and beat the living shit out of you. Then I never want to hear from you again. I want you to know how it feels to be beaten and helpless. To have fists crashing down on you and not a goddamn thing you can do about it. To be the victim for the first fucking time in your life. Cassidy objects that he's strong as 50 men, but Jesse uses the word of God and says, when the time comes, you better fight like hell. Yeah, specifically Cassidy says that he's not going to fight because he doesn't want to hurt Jesse. And that's why Jesse orders him to fight the best he can. <laughs> and at this point, a... just comically, ridiculously evil son of a bitch <laughs> walks up. Yeah, this guy deliberately picks a bar fight with them. And they just sort of sideways glance at each other and toast. And we cut to Tulip. Tulip is all decked out in tactical gear with an assault rifle. I'm gonna kill him. I'm gonna save his stupid fucking life for him, and then I'm gonna kill him. Yeah, and then she orders Skeeter to lead her to Jesse, which she is apparently going to do. Standing over the unconscious barflies back at Hondo's, including the evil barfly. Yes. Cassidy asks for more time, so Jesse agrees to meet in front of the Alamo at 5 a.m. Don't make me come looking for you. Now alone in the bar, or virtually alone. Addressing Cass the unconscious population of the bar, yeah. Cassidy finishes talking about Breaker Morant. Shot at dawn, you know? It's sort of traditional. So it's ready aim, and they're just about to fire, and Edward Woodward calls out, Shoot straight, you bastards! Don't make a mess of it. And the pair of them were blasted to fuck. The end. Yeah, so on that ominous note, that's the ending that Cassidy expects. He's got a little something up his sleeve. Well, he's characterizing himself as facing the music like Breaker Morant. We'll see how that plays out. Right. Preacher, issue 65. We have a Glenn Fabry cover here that depicts the crying Genesis, who is also the son and possibly also the Teletubbies kid. 
Um, <laughs> underneath, Jesse and Cassidy are facing off with each other at the Alamo. Are the credits for this issue all the same? Yeah, it's the same credits for all three issues this week. Okay. So at 5 a.m., they meet in front of the Alamo. Hey, take your shades off. Now hold on, we're just gonna start going at it. Take them the fuck off. Jesse, for fuck's sake. Jesse says, your choice, and then knocks the sunglasses off with an awesome punch. Yeah, we have a full page here of Jesse punching Cassidy in the face, knocking his sunglasses off. And a quote here from Evan S. Connell's best-selling 1984 book on the Battle of Little Bighorn, Son of the Morning Star. Custer, his name reverberates like the clang of a sword. You see, if you're talking about Jesse Custer, that sounds cool. If you're talking about George Armstrong Custer, yeah. you sound like kind of an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Boasting of the martial prowess of George Custer is a problem. <laughs> yeah. On a roof nearby, Star is surprised by this turn of events. He orders Captain Gander, the sniper, to keep Custer in his sights, but not shoot yet. Sir, I know the San Antonio PD is keeping people clear. But people will soon be. Thank you for doing the accent. Stay on fucking target, Captain. I want to see this. Tulip's making her way to the scene. She notices that it's weird that she hasn't seen any cop cars. But then she sees why. The Grail goons. Woof. Stay. And here we finally get a look at Cassidy's fucked up eyes without his sunglasses. Yeah, we have never seen Cassidy's eyes before. At least not when he was a vampire. The eyes are... Very uh, jaundiced and bloodshot, and the skin surrounding them looks extremely aged. Yeah, the sclera are, like, completely red. The effect, I'm guessing, of decades of drug abuse. That's some kind of side effect, or you just been jerking off the past hundred years? Cassidy starts getting his ass handed to him. He protests that Jesse can't hurt him, but it kind of seems like Jesse can. Yeah, the first punch left a cut and... Cassidy's forehead, which is dripping blood into his eyes, blinding him. I can still fucking smell ya. And Jesse smashes Cassidy's nose. Up on the roof. What's going on? asks Featherstone. Yeah. Two good and dear friends are fighting like animals, trading love and honor and respect for hatred, throwing every cherished moment of their friendship down the toilet. And I'm fucking loving it, Featherstone. He then dismissively scolds her to get back downstairs, which prompts her to say, God, you really are a monster, aren't you? Star confirms that he is. He says he became one to save the world, but now he's just in it for vengeance. You can't say I don't look the part. So I'm the villain, and I'm the monster. All I want is my revenge on Jesse Custer. The world will have to look elsewhere for its savior, Featherstone. And so will you. Oh, you bastard, she says. You bastard, and she pulls her own gun. But Star shoots her first. Jesse is still winning the fight. You got the strength and the speed, but you don't know how to put them together, do you? Of course, that's pretty much the story of your life when you get right down to it. This thing you are, the advantages it gives you, you never earned none of it, did you? Yeah. Why should you learn to fight when you're as strong as a goddamn ox? You had your whole life handed to you on a platter. The fella taught me to fight was the same piece of shit shot my daddy did in front of my eyes. That'll tend to focus your concentration. Cassidy so manages to grab Jesse's lapel and says, Ha! He thinks he has him now. And Jesse kicks him in the balls. That hurt, huh? Don't be so fucking stupid. Thought it hurt anyone. Yeah, so here it's explained how Jesse is managing to win this fight despite Cassidy's super strength. Cassidy really has no chops at fighting. 
he's just strong, whereas Jesse, as we've seen, has, like, unlimited fighting skill. At a gas station, some Grail goons are struggling to help themselves to some gas. Okay, I think I've got it. Try it now! The guy's complaining how stupid Hoover is. Ridiculous level of incompetence I have to put up with, honestly. <laughs> and then fucking Tulip just kind of casually bloops them. <laughs> bloops not a verb I'm familiar with. She seems to fire a 40mm grenade from the underbarrel launcher. Yes. She noob tubes them. <laughs> yes. Or or in her hands, perhaps it's more of a pro pipe. <laughs> There's all this lingo that I didn't know. But Tulip... Well, bloop is not Call of Duty lingo. That's combat lingo? I No, I'm not sure about... I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure I would go that far, but th- there's a grenade launcher called a blooper. Okay. And, and, you know, grenade launchers make a kind of, like, bloop noise when, yeah. you, when you fire them. Yeah, that's true. Maybe that's what that is. The entire gas station explodes as a result of the grenade, and we see Tulip flinging herself clear of the explosion. Tulip... You know, we've talked about the fact that Jesse is a cowboy. That's pretty obvious. Tulip in this sequence is playing a different kind of action hero, a more modern kind. She's almost the Schwarzenegger or the Stallone character. Yeah, no, Schwarzenegger is what came to my mind. Mm-hmm. She's last action hero. <laughs> Except she's not going to, like, you know, meet herself and tell herself how pathetic herself is. Is that what happens in that movie? Yeah. Schwarzenegger's character meets Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> and, like... Schwarzenegger's trying to talk to him, but he's like, listen, I don't like you very much. <laughs> that sounds pretty funny. Yeah, because they, they go to the premiere of the movie. That's, oh, one of the things okay. that, that's one of the things that happens. Naturally. So the rest of the Grail troops see this explosion and start converging, but Star tells Gander to ignore it. Who cares? The Samson team will deal with it. You make sure to stay on target. The Samson team does not deal with it. No, instead, the Samson team is dealt with. Fuckers, says Tulip as she fills them all with lead. Yeah, this is almost like one of the Saints massacres. We see these guys just get cut down by a more competent gunfighter. You fuck with me, I'll show you who you're fucking with. God above us, who is this woman? One grail guy says, and I decided that he was French. And just sort of like, just like Star said, you know, who the fuck cares. Cassidy also sees the explosion, but Jesse says, ain't none of your concern. Tulip has cornered this one guy, like, the one grail guy who's only wounded, and she demands to know where Star is. He tells her, so there's the plot advancing, and she shoots him anyway. Yeah, she shoots him in cold blood. Not very nice, but, you know, the grail are shit heels. So Jesse asks Cassidy if he's alive or dead. What side of the goddamn grave are you on? He says if Cassidy's alive, then he knows the meaning of keeping your word, being loyal to people. He says Cassidy's probably not sure himself, whether he's a man or just a corpse. And then Jesse brings up Psy. Oh, yeah. Now, Psy we met in the second story arc of the whole series. He was a, an old friend of Cassidy who turned out to be a serial killer when they met him in New York. Yeah, and at the time, Cassidy lamented what it's like to have a guy that you think is a good and true friend. You know, a guy that you've really let in, but you think that that's okay. And Jesse asks, were you really talking about Psy, or were you in some twisted way warning me about yourself? Who the fuck do you think you are saying these fucking things? Who the fuck are you to judge me? Why, I'm just the son of a bitch never beat up no woman, Cass. God damn you, you asshole! Why the fuck did you let me down so bad? 
He says this in between blows. On the rooftop, Hoover shows up. Motherfucker. You evil, twisted motherfucker. He has his gun at the ready, but once again, Star blows him away before he can do anything about what an evil motherfucker Star is. Really quietly, Cassidy says, Help me. Just like he probably did in New York back in Preacher number 58. At least Jesse heard a tiny voice saying that. Right. He says Jesse's the only one who can help him. He reminds Jesse of their first meeting, how Jesse asked for a ride and he could have just stolen Cassidy's truck. Totally fucking honest. Why? Because I thought I was looking at a good guy. Cassidy reminds Jesse that he came back to save him from the Saint of Killers. That happened in the first story arc. It was the first decent thing he'd done in years, he says. I'm not a total monster. I do know right from wrong. And you think knowing you're a bastard is some kind of excuse for it? That lets you off the hook for preying on people? Treating them like trash, all of that shit? No. All I think is, there's maybe a spark of hope. But I'm gonna need help if I'm gonna make anything of it. Fuck you. No fucking way. I can't believe you got the balls to say that to me. I ought to rip your fucking head off just for... for... I'm your friend and I'm asking you for help. Oh, Jesus. I need your help or I'm damned, Jesse. Do I get a second chance, Jesse? Can you reach out a hand to a friend? You had a thousand chances. You're the one who made your life into a nightmare. Fuck yourself. Jesse fucking Custer. It's not so easy to stand by your friends when they're stuck on the road to hell, is it? And that actually seems to get through to Jesse a little bit. God damn it, Cassidy. All you ever had to do was act like a man. He reaches out, he takes Cassidy's hand. And Cassidy sends him flying with a super strong punch. In the stairwell, the roof access stairwell, Tulip finds Featherstone and Hoover both dead. Yeah, she takes a moment and closes Featherstone's eyes. I gotta say, like, the summary execution of Featherstone and Hoover... This hurts. This doesn't feel right. Even though they were bad guys, they didn't deserve this. Yeah, they always deserved better than Star. And it's a shame that they didn't get some kind of revenge on him. Yeah, they deserved some kind of comeuppance, but not to be coldly executed by someone they trusted. Maybe because Tulip knows what it's like to stick by the man you love, she has a little bit of pity for Featherstone. Don't get up, Jesse. I mean it, seriously. Your breastbone's broken. I heard it go. If you try and stand, it'll maybe stick in your heart. Let's go, Jesse says, standing. Jesus, what the fuck do they make lads like you from? Now, the sun starts to rise behind Cassidy. He makes a comment about the timing, about getting the timing right, meaning that he planned this. I don't deserve to be your friend, Jesse. I don't deserve your friendship, and I don't deserve salvation. I mean, the kind of things I've done, hitting women for Jesus' sake. You can't be forgiven for evil like that. He turns to face the sun. You've got to burn it out. Jesse tries to stop him, tries to get to him, but he's too badly wounded. Cassidy, you asshole! Don't! It was enough that you took my hand. So long as a fellow like you will do that for me, then I know I've got some good in me somewhere. I know I'm not totally damned. And then, uh, Jesse's still pleading for him to save himself. Cassidy uh, delivers what I think is kind of an important line here. Mm -hmm. Because it comes back to one of the key themes of Preacher America. Yeah. I'll tell you the funny thing about America, Jesse, and I should know I've spent most of a century seeing it. It is a brilliant fucking place. If you're smart about it, it'll give you everything. But Jesus, it'd wear you out. What's your take on that line? Well, I think we should, we should save that till the end. Okay. I do want to point out while we're here that Cassidy's line to Jesse, can you reach out a hand to a friend, that's almost word for word what Gunther said to him. 
mm. in salvation. And, and you reach out a hand of forgiveness or something. Yeah, and Jesse threw Gunther a noose. With Cassidy, he seems a little more willing to forgive. Well, maybe he feels bad about what he did to Gunther, and that's part of why Cassidy gets this second chance. Yeah, so the arc is definitely invoking the concept of forgiveness, and we're going to come back to that again. Don't! You don't have to! I don't want this, I swear to fucking God! But it's too late. The sun is almost over the horizon. Hello there, you big blonde bitch. Oh, Cassidy and your casual sexism. And Cassidy burns to smithereens. Yeah, I mean, he just explodes. Like, there's a, a big burst of fire here in front of Jesse, and he's gone. Hairstar, mine is an evil face, says, <laughs> Now! And Captain Gander fires, and we see Jesse fall. The giant screaming baby face of Genesis appears over San Antonio. And this is like its death shriek, right? Yeah, I guess so. This is something that didn't occur to me at first, but we never hear from Genesis again, so... I don't know if it's dead or just got away, but it's stopped being relevant to this series, certainly. Yeah, and as we're going to find out in the next issue, God seems pretty satisfied that it is no longer a threat. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, which it was when it burst out of heaven, so I guess it's dead. As Star and Gander are marveling at the death of Genesis, Tulip comes from behind and opens fire on them both. She kills Gander before he knew what hit him, but Star is only winged. Winged? <laughs> He's not winged. That means he has wings. Uh, he shoots back, hitting her vest and knocking her off her feet. He charges her, screaming and firing. I'll kill you, you whore. I'll kill you. I'll kill every last one of you bitches. You took my fucking cock. Um, women didn't take your cock, Star. <laughs> I think he means Jesse's crew. I mean, I think he knows who she is. Oh, I thought he just meant that he hates women. Fair enough. It was a dog. A dog ate his cock. Yeah, I, I know. I, don't <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think he's making sense. But I still, I thought it was, I thought he was being pretty sexist. So he gets right up close with Tulip. He gets his gun in her face, but click, he's fired his six shots. And Tulip gets a look of pure bloodlust on her face, puts her gun under Star's chin, and blows his brains out the back of his head. Top of his head, little above. Ah, ah, shit, he says. He says magically before he <laughs> dies. In a panic, a wounded tulip runs outside and finds Jesse Custer with a dime-sized hole in his forehead. And that was how they killed him, covered in the ashes of his dearest friend. And we get the title of this issue. The title page is the last page. Shoot straight, you bastards, which is the line from Breaker Morant. Final cover. Cover of the final issue. Once again by Glenn Fabry. An army of angels charging over the gates of heaven, and in the foreground, a hand hovers near a pistol. Near a revolver. Mm-hmm. Colt. We open on a full-page splash of desert with a city visible in the far distance. Presumably San Antonio? Yeah, I think this is the same desert where we're going to come back to at the end of the issue. Yes, I agree. There are three quotations here. One is from Lonesome Dove, and it includes the title reference for this issue. They say you're a man of vision. Yeah, it's a hell of a vision, Call said. He was forced to put spurs to the dun to get away from the boy, who stood scribbling on a pad. The next quotation is from The Cowboy's Lament, and then the one after that is from Bill Hicks. It's about wanting to grow up to be a cowboy hero. I always wanted to be the avenging cowboy hero, 
and in my heart of hearts I still track the remnants of that dream wherever I go, in my endless ride into the setting sun. And then we get a two-page spread of the long note that Jesse left for Tulip. Right. Do you want to give us the, the broad strokes? Let's break this down a little bit, because we can't read a two-page letter. It is a good and memorable letter, however. Jesse says that he wouldn't be any kind of man if he didn't try to set right God's abandonment of creation. But, he says, when he learned Genesis' secrets, when he met God face to face, he realized God wasn't a loving God, just one who wanted love, who fed on love. And now Jesse believes it's not enough to confront him. He has to get rid of him. Tracking down God and using the word to make him confess his crimes wouldn't be enough. People wouldn't believe it. So, he says he recruited the saint of killers to kill a God. But the only way that would work is if God wasn't afraid of Genesis anymore. And the only way that happens is if Jesse's dead. This is what he said way back at the beginning of the story arc. The only way I can see clear is if I'm dead. So Jesse admits that he summoned Star to San Antone, which we kind of already figured. He's going to take care of Cassidy, Star's going to take care of him, and the saint will take care of Star and God. It ended up being Tulip. The saint's not in San Antonio right now. But nobody's perfect. In a way, Jesse says he's discharging the duty of a preacher to serve the Lord as best he can. His only regret is that he'll never see Tulip again. If I could cry, if the trash who killed my daddy hadn't taken that from me, I would. And attached to the letter, there is a key to a bus station locker containing all the money from their old days as car thieves. On the next page, Jesse and Tulip are standing there together at the bus station. What? I know. And we get a narration box. And so, of course, he came back to life just as she had. And just as she had, he felt less. Kind of diminished, even. Like I'm alive, but I know I was dead and something I can't put behind me. It's pretty much how I felt, too. So we don't know yet how Jesse came back to life, but he did. It's He's... also worth noting that he has two eyes now. Oh shit, you're right. His uh, missing eye that he lost in his fight with God in the desert has been regenerated as part of his resurrection. Which is kind of interesting. It means that he can sort of put behind him the persona that he was wearing the last several issues. Right. Leave his heroing behind and be himself. Tulip says he's never going to see her again, and he's not going to be able to persuade her otherwise. He agrees. I no longer have the right. Tulip confronts him. You made me a promise the first time you pulled this shit. You said you would trust me to handle myself and you would never leave me behind again. Do you think breaking your word doesn't matter when it's to a woman? Do you think honor is something that only counts between men? I ain't got no defense, Tulip. He asks where she's going. New York, probably. Where he'll go, Jesse doesn't know. He says he knows the word is gone. He doesn't know what, if anything, happened in heaven. Tulip tells him that Star is dead. He says Cassidy, too. Tulip sarcastically comments that he's discharged his responsibility, and she asks if all the macho bullshit was really worth it. Jesse seems to accept losing her. Way it's gotta be, Skeet. I just don't deserve her no more. But then he finds a note in his jacket pocket. It's from Cassidy, who really has terrific penmanship, despite all his faults. Look at that. And do you want to summarize Cassidy's note for us? Basically, it thanks Jesse for reaching out to Cassidy which I guess he wrote this and then gave it to him when he reached his hand out? Must be. He says that while he can't be redeemed or forgiven, it was enough that Jesse was his friend. He wonders if Jesse's big job wasn't so much about God, but about saving him. Isn't it funny when you think your story's going one way, and it turns out it was going another way all along? That's kind of an interestingly meta line. Maybe the comic book series itself didn't wrap up exactly the way that Garth Ennis originally planned it. Maybe Cassidy... Turning out to be such a big villain in it was something of a surprise. Yeah, I think that maybe when he started writing it, he didn't know. Like, he thought that 
Cassidy would be kind of a dick, but he didn't realize how much it would tear the group apart mm -hmm. and become the focus of the storyline. At the Gates of Heaven, God is downright chipper. I just want to point out that these Gates of Heaven look nothing like they're the Gates of Heaven very, on the cover. They're very different from the Gates of Heaven we see on the cover. God opens the gates and returns home, and he's narrating here, to no one in particular, the deal that he made with Kate Bush. I mean, with Cassidy. What? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> so Cassidy set up Jesse so that God could have him killed and get rid of Genesis, and in return, God had to promise, Jesse gets to live. And by the way, so does Cassidy. I kept my bargain all the same, because, because I am a loving God. Sitting on a park bench, talking to Skeeter, Jesse is still weighing whether or not he should go after Tulip. You know, if I don't go after her, then all of this has been for nothing, and nothing good comes out of it, just blood and loss and horror. And then he sees a horse, it seems like a golden opportunity, but he doesn't believe in horse theft. <laughs> right, he has this one fucking thing. The thing he will never do is to steal a horse, because, you know, a hundred years ago that was a really bad thing to do. You stupid fucking nag straying off again. All this damage is going to come out of my pay. So this is the, I don't know, policeman or gardener who owns the horse, and, and he apparently doesn't deserve that horse. Then again, Jesse says. Also, like, it's not like he's going to be stranded miles from civilization. He can call a cab. <laughs> yeah, they're in the middle of San Antonio right now. <laughs> in a traffic jam, leaving town, makes you wonder if there is such a thing as divine providence. Tulip glances into her bag and notices that Somehow, she got slipped a note from Cassidy as well. Yes, we recognize the gorgeous penmanship of one Prontius Cassidy. For me to try to apologize to you, for me to even dare to think about it, will be nothing short of obscene after what I did. But this is one thing I ought to do for you, just to get the record straight. He talks about the time when they thought that Jesse was dead, and how Tulip had asked if he said anything before he fell out of the plane. And Cassidy admits that he lied. I said no, he didn't, because I couldn't even stand you having that wee bit of him to hold on to. Well, he did say something, Tulip. He said, tell her I love her. Then he made me let him go. So, now she knows. Just then, Jesse rides up on his stolen horse. You came after me. I had to. She says it makes no sense for her to take him back. He agrees, but what they have has never been rational. It comes from the heart, he says. But he sees he's got to change, and he's willing to. We can make our lives the way we want them, or we ain't worth nothing. Now take my hand and I swear I'll love you till the goddamn stars go out. You're crying, Tulip says, and she's crying too. Guess I must be learning. So we have once again a hand reached out for another. A hand reached out for forgiveness. Yeah, and, and Jesse's tears indicate that he is capable of change. He wasn't able to cry for all those years, but as he says, he's learning. Yeah, and, and maybe... Maybe showing, too, that this matters to him more than anything else. And in this scene, we don't, we don't yet see whether or not Tulip accepts the hand that's reached out. Back in heaven, God finds the throne surrounded by dead angels, with the saint standing among them. You! Me! The saint says God has this coming, for his wife and daughter. Them and the hell you made in this world. But it is my creation! It's outgrown you. You should have found the sand to face the preacher. That power of his or no, you might have had a chance against him. Now you've none. God transforms into his rage mode. Yeah, and... we've seen that he's usually this kind of golden beatific figure, but he also has a glowing red rage mode. 
He shouts that it is given unto none to stand against him, but when he sees the determined look on the saint's face... Well, specifically when the saint points the cult. He quickly backs down. Please don't. God says he was just alone and wanted to be loved. He tries to bargain with the saint to let him pass, to let him to the throne, which it's been established. Once he sits on it, he'll be invincible. Please, please, what is it that you want? To rest, says the saint of killers as he pulls the trigger. Where will we live, Tulip says. She is now on the back of the horse with Jesse, and they are riding off to the outskirts of the city. Riding out into that desert that we saw at the beginning of the issue. And Jesse responds, America. He says that he never really wanted to be a preacher. What did you want to be then, she asks. And over two gorgeous full-page spreads with him riding off, he answers, Hell, girl. Can't you guess? And they ride off into the sunset. And there's Skeeter. He's walking alongside the horse. Yes, Skeeter is not lost. Skeeter accompanies them into the ending. I really thought they were going to kill off that dog, and he was fine. The saint stands before the throne with the corpse of God in the foreground. Remember, the saint's cults are the sword of the angel of death. They can kill anything. Right, and he already killed Satan with them. So, yeah, we know that they can even kill fundamental forces of the universe. He sits down in the throne, but he just puts his hat over his eyes and goes to sleep. I was prepared to be kind of pissed if it had ended with Saint killing God, and it turned out better than I expected. Because it was really a plan that Jesse engineered after coming to an understanding of God, after they literally struggled in the desert like Isaac. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That if that had been how it ended, it would be like, okay, so you created an unkillable cowboy, and then you had him kill everybody. (laughs) But it turned out better than I expected. Yeah. And then we come upon... Cassidy, looking young again, watching the sunset, apparently human again. Yeah, he watches the sunset, stands up, takes his shades out of his pocket, throws them in the dirt. I think you are right, Jesse. I think I'll try acting like a man. He gets in his truck, sticks something to the rearview mirror, and drives off. And the series ends on that image. It's the photo of Cassidy, Jesse, and Tulip together. And we get the title, A Hell of a Vision. That's it. It's a wrap. Movie's over. Go home. (laughs) A couple of things I think we should talk about. I'll make a a little list. So, the saint kills God. Yes, he does. Sneaks on into heaven and gets him. Yeah. And Uh, then takes up residence. Most of the heavenly host. He ends up sitting on the throne, which is pretty scary, but he just seems to want to sleep. Yeah, and and God offered him the offer, which, you know, is like the most tempting offer in uh, exchange for leaving heaven. His wrath surpasses his... Uh... Yeah, well, yeah, like uh, like Franco Castillo. Yeah. yeah. I, I am home. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I'm not super thrilled that, like, the height of the horror of Cassidy's past is that he sucked some dick. I mean, I get that, like... I thought the height of the horror of his past was that he blinded D in one eye. That he punched D in the side of the head so hard that it burst an eyeball. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty bad. In fairness, like, you know, Cassidy is not gay. It's not a choice he's willfully making. It's a thing that... it's It's an extent that he's led to by the need for heroin. Yeah, his addiction. Yeah, exactly. Does that, and then, yeah, he has a... He has a history of hitting women. And I had this sort of... This thought, sort of thought of, like... Is Jesse being really harsh 
when he comes back to Cassidy and he wants to, you know, he, he basically says, I'm going to beat the hell out of you once and then let you go. Yeah. Which, incidentally, like, I remember noticing in the saddle that Jesse is killing his enemies a lot. Like, mm-hmm. he, kills that, he kills that one thug with a cattle gun and then he hangs <laughs> fucking, what is his name, Napoleon Vichy. <laughs> yeah. And I thought it's kind of unusual for Jesse to be killing his enemies. He's really more of a, a ass-kicking that makes you a better person kind of guy most of the time. Here's one to learn on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he decides he's going to beat the shit out of Cassidy. But I, re- I was thinking, like, is it a little harsh that he reacts to Cassidy this way? And is it a little harsh that he reacts to a friend this way? And I guess my conclusion is, like, Jesse is a relentlessly moral person. And this is the first time that he's had this information, that he's had the ability to judge Cassidy on all of his... On all of his past. I just love the confrontation between them so much. The, like, you know, the whole, like, aspect of, like, you broke my heart, you let me down so bad. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he judges Cassidy by a harsher standard because they were friends. And Cassidy definitely hasn't lived up, lived up to what Jesse considers a moral man's responsibilities. Well, and Cassidy hasn't lived up to the guy that he presents himself as, right? Because the whole, like, first, third or so of the series he's putting up this front of like and xavier talks about this he talks about this how like cassidy can make you think he's the greatest guy in the world yeah you know that's right and like like worms his way into your life so that you can't live without him you know yeah so cassidy has put forward this front of being like this great dude well yeah cassidy and jesse sort of bond over this attitude that they're both like you know, they'll kick a guy's ass in a bar fight, but they're not bad guys, and they're particularly loyal to their friends. Right. And Cassidy, in particular, is not loyal to his friends. Yeah. It's this idea of all the good parts of traditional masculinity with none of the toxic stuff. Right. Which Cassidy is not at all. <laughs> no. Yeah. So, yeah, just a really good confrontation. Because she's a thing with Gunther, and okay, here's the thing about Gunther. <laughs> Okay. This actually bothered me. Okay. Um, which is, Jesse has figured out that he's lying, and he was a real, he was the worst of the worst. Right. And he's like, can you forgive me? And Jesse gives him a noose. I yeah. made up this noose for you. <laughs> <laughs> Saved you the time. <laughs> right. And he hangs himself, and he was dating Jesse's mom at the time. Yeah, because I think Jesse wants him out of the picture because he can't, it would break his mom's heart to know... To have to find out what he really was. Okay, that's a way of viewing it, but I, that sort of didn't occur to me. And it, obviously, like, I don't believe Jesse would murder a guy for about to... Or, you know, bully a guy into suicide, whatever, for dating his mom. But I did kind of feel like, if you're going to have him kill himself, if you're going to get rid of the guy for his sins, she deserves the truth, right? Yeah, I think that Jesse can't stand the idea of his mom finding out the truth. Okay. And that's, again, it's like his, it's like his need to protect Tula from stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, he doesn't grant her the full autonomy that she deserves. Yeah. You know, but it's coming from a place of love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a little old-fashioned particularly with women with protecting women. Right. So yeah, I I follow that thread. He has these ideas of protecting women that are noble in their way, but not fully enlightened. What do you think of Cassidy getting a good ending? Cassidy basically getting everything that he wanted. Well, it's clear that Garth Ennis is trying to convey the message that he's that he's changed, that he's serious about changing. Mm-hmm. He's, 
He's not a vampire. He's not a thing of darkness anymore. Mm-hmm. Does his redemption feel totally earned? No. Okay. Even though he did spend most of the the penultimate issue getting his ass handed to him. You know, he, he does go through a lot of physical pain. And then he goes through a sort of literal self-sacrificing destruction. Yeah, I guess you can read that scene in a couple of ways. We get the famous ass-kicking that makes you a better man from Jesse. Um, <laughs> right. But Cassidy turns to face the sun, and at this point he knows that he's made a deal with God. Right. So is he taking a leap of faith because he doesn't know if God will come through? He certainly hopes so. But he's willing to face destruction if that's what he deserves. Or is he faking his death for Jesse, knowing that he'll be okay? I think it's neither. I think the moment is big. Because even though he knows he's coming back, he's giving up vampirism. Okay. He's giving up his vampire powers and his sort of shitty immortality. The thing that Jesse said gives him all these advantages that he never earned. Right. And he's kind of throwing that all away for a chance to be a better man. Mm -hmm. I don't remember if we talked about this on the air. You had suggested the sort of notion that Cassidy's vampirism is sort of inextricably linked with a fundamental weakness of character. Yeah, vampires are, you know, mythologically, vampires are creatures that just want. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they crave, and then they feed on others to satisfy their cravings. So it's not just that he survives, but he also perhaps regains some of that innocence that he originally lost while in the Irish Rebellion and then when the hag bit him. Right. I think that I think that Garth Ennis is clearly sending a message here that, like, Cassidy has changed. Mm-hmm. Now, again, his redemption does not fully feel earned, but we did get a lot of, like, him coming to grips with how low and how shitty he is. Yeah. And how bad of a person he's been. And him paying for it through a variety of, like, of physical pain. Means of penance. Right. And it is an ending that is about forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And finding it in yourself to forgive someone, even someone who doesn't deserve it, someone who has been horrible. So maybe it's not very forgiving of us to wish for an ending in which Cassidy got a little more of what he deserved. Um, right. But he has, a, he has a second chance here. He has the opportunity to attempt to earn forgiveness. Yeah. And he's also, you know, Jesse and Tulip will never know that he's alive again. You know, he's given them up as well. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's what the, the final shot invokes, that he has a positive memory of his time with Jesse and Tulip, and with the change that they wreaked in him. But that's not something that he gets to have anymore. Right. And Jesse, of course, we see the theme repeated with Jesse, who fully admits that he doesn't deserve forgiveness for what he did to Tulip. He doesn't deserve her back. But at the same time, he'd be nothing if he didn't try. It's the thing he wants the most. It's the thing he can't live without. And he's willing to uh, give up a bit of his macho mystique. A bit of his incredible masculinity. Yeah. You know, I wondered when I read it if Garth Ennis had taken a bit of a bit of pity on his favorite character. That seems true. I mean, I guess it's not clear whether I'm talking about Cassidy or Jesse. Kind of both. I guess I've... Oh, I thought you meant Arseface. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I've referred to Cassidy as, as Ennis' favorite character, or even Ennis' author avatar, which is maybe unfair. Maybe it's fairer to say that Cassidy starts off as kind of the fun, party-loving heart of the series, but he becomes everything that 
and it's dislikes or fears in the mystique of masculinity. Yeah. And Jesse, on the other hand, is like what Ennis wants to be, an ideal. Right. The saint, on the other hand, is kind of another take on a masculine mystique. He's someone who's been living it so long he's forgotten he was anything else. Jesse spent number 60 trying to break through to the man beneath the legend, employing his own concept of masculinity in the process. A man keeps his word. Uh, But to convince the saint to make a decision, not just to act out of force of habit, to kill out of force of habit, as he says in the first issue, at the end of the series, the saint does give up to some extent what he has been thus far in his decision just to rest. Yeah, I think that for the saint, redemption is out of reach. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to be anything anymore. (laughs) Yeah. He does something which we're given to understand from the series is a good thing, although it's not... It's not quite him doing good. Right. Because he's still a monster. Yeah. No, it's more like him kind of serving a purpose. Yeah. I don't know if I think that there's too much that's really thematic there. What happens with God and the Saint, I think, is more Ennis tying up plot threads. Well, and dispensing a little bit of an opinion on religion. Sure. Eventually, the best thing that, that God and faith can do is to leave us to our own devices. Yeah, but I don't think that there's any redemption in the saint killing god. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Hairstar, obviously a person who can find no forgiveness or redemption. Yeah. There's a slight glimmer of it when he kind of comes to realize how much of a monster he is. You know, at least he's not... At least he's not sowing Uns- bullshit He's anymore. not unselfconscious. Right. Yeah. But yeah, you know, he got plenty of ass kickings and none of them made him a better man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And pretty satisfying that Tulip gets to finish him off. Yeah, both in that other characters had other battles to fight, but also in that she finally gets to show off how badass she can be, and she gets to demonstrate that leaving her behind was a mistake. Right. she absolutely can fucking handle it. Yeah. So, what do you make of that line? It'll wear you out. So, Preacher is so much about, like... It's about, like, there's, there's good and there's bad in religion and there's good and there's bad in masculinity and i there's two lines here that are important in this issue as to how ennis feels about america Mm -hmm. cassidy says america will wear you out because you know to him america was was one big party you know it was the american dream but cassidy never embraced like the responsibility aspect of the american dream yeah you know, and he kind of says, like, it'll give everything to you if you're smart, but he's never been that smart, you know, <laughs> and when he says it'll wear you out, I think that's a real concern of of America, you know, is it's it's a very competitive place to be. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's it's a place that eats its young to a certain extent, you know. Yeah. There's a degree to which the concept of the American dream is you can make anything of yourself, but you have to do it. Yes. And Ennis clearly portrays America as being full of assholes, (laughs) you know? And, you know, going back to the Salvation story arc, you know, assholes on an individual level, you know, the cop beating up his horse. Yeah. But also just, like... Institutional assholery? Yeah. Well-established cultural assholery? Right, exactly. There's, There's places and there's cultures that are not that admirable. Yeah. But I think the other important line that we see in this issue is when Tulip asks, where will we live? And Jesse says, America. Mm -hmm. Like, 
you know, this is a series where all of our main characters are alive at the end, but all of our main characters also died at some point. Yeah, that's true. And that's, like, telling us, like, these people have to change. They have to change in order to improve. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that maybe that's the message with America as well. It's like, America has to change. Tulip and Jesse are not turning their back on America. Mm -hmm. But, you know, yeah. America is in need of change. Yeah, it's a place built on a dream and needs to earn that dream. It's, um, it is not yet the dream, but it is the potential to become it. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good read. I think there's definitely a major theme of freedom in this series. I would yeah. almost say it's the major theme. The heroes have the power and self-possession to live the way they want, and it's their attitude that gives them power as much as anything else. They, right. they choose to live freely and be who they are. It's villains, God, the Grail, Cassidy, who seek to impinge on others' freedom in some way. God and Cassidy are almost mirror images by the end. Their desperate need for love mixed with their destructive behavior towards those that they love. Right. And their sort of vengeful behavior. Well, not Cassidy so much. Not Cassidy? Cassidy's not particularly vindictive. Oh, no. That's not his, that's not his sin. No, that's right. Well, yeah, he acts almost purely on impulse. He doesn't hold a grudge because he doesn't think about anything that long. Right. But yeah, that sense of freedom and that sense of freedom as an attitude that you take on and that you make for yourself gives the series a sort of a real joie de vivre that you don't see in a lot of comic books that certainly isn't matched by Garth Ennis' Ron and Hellblazer, even though it has its fun moments. Yeah, so that brings us to something else we should talk about, which is Cassidy as John Constantine. <laughs> Go on. Well, I think there's a lot of parallels between the two characters. To a certain extent, I mean, even though Constantine is English yeah. and Cassidy is Irish. Yeah. They are both kind of like these like barroom rogues, you yes. know? And they both have a sort of mystique that comes with that of like rebellion and cool, you know? But in both cases we see the dark side of that mystique. And I wonder if Cassidy is in some ways a reflection of what Annis learned about that kind of ne'er-do-well character type from his years writing Hellblazer. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if Jesse is in some ways the anti-John Constantine. Okay. Like... If Constantine is, like, this kind of, like, cool ne'er-do-well who seems very seductive and appealing, mm -hmm. but does not think of himself as a good guy. Yeah. Jesse, I mean, Jesse is really cool, too, yeah. in practice, but he doesn't start off the series that way. You know, he is, he's in this very kind of establishment job <laughs> as a preacher. As a preacher, yeah. And he's not, like, the guy who doesn't think of himself as the good guy. He's very self-consciously a good guy. Yeah, that's sort of the biggest difference, I guess, between Jesse and Constantine. Constantine is a a nasty piece of work. Jesse self-consciously thinks of himself as the good guy and tries to be the good guy, according to a strict definition of what that means. Yeah, and I think that in some ways, Jesse Custer is the answer to the kind of... Just the kind of misery of John Constantine, <laughs> right? Yeah, that, that Constantine is the anti-hero. And Jesse is the reconstruction. Jesse is the hero. Right. And, and, and so Constantine can't keep anything in his life without him screwing it up. Or at least that's what he's telling us in the story lately. Yeah. You know, 
whereas Jesse has a shot at happiness. Yeah, although he does he does also have to change. It's not his attitude is not purely good for him. Right. Tulip even questions whether the quest itself was a a good thing. Yeah, whether it was something that he undertook out of need or out of macho bullshit. Yeah. I think that Genesis is sort of Genesis is this power, right? And like when men get power, more so than when women do, when men get power, they feel this drive to exercise it. Okay. You know, like Jesse was always going to find an excuse to use the word of God or to use, he's using the word of God sparingly, but if not even the word of God, just this sort of like specialness Mm -hmm. that he's been granted (laughs) with, you know, he gets this power. He has to go on an adventure because, Mm, okay. Yeah. He feels this drive to use the power that he's kind of lucked into. Yeah. It's partially great power, great responsibility, but it's also, a drive to some extent to impose himself, his values, his attitude on the world. Right. To impose his will on others. Yeah. I also think that Hellblazer is to some extent about the burden of knowledge. John knows that the mystical world exists and that terrible things are happening, and because he knows, he can't stay out of it, even though his battles will always cost him dearly. He is always under the oppression of that knowledge. Right. So, one of the best series ever, or best series ever? (laughs) Can you name a better one? <laughs> Can you name a better? That's the tough one, right? Well, I, maybe Sandman is a better one to me, but um, it's very good. It's one of the best comics that I've read. Grant, Grant, Grant Grinnis, Grant Grinnis, Garth Ennis, Garth Ennis, not Warren Ellis. Warren Ellis. <laughs> Garth Ennis knows what he is doing, and he's a, a very talented scribe at the very least. And Steve Dillon killed it those last couple of issues too. I mean, it ends on a, on two consecutive double page spreads of them riding into the sunset. That's fucking killer. Yeah. Well, all right. Preacher. If you haven't gotten this yet, listeners, one of the main thrusts of this podcast is go read Preacher. Yeah, it was very good. And a person could do a lot worse as a, um, sort of as a creator-owned epic. I don't know if it's actually creator-owned, but it's certainly an original, an original story. Right. And, um, Garth Ennis's, uh, romantic fixation on Last Stands. Is something we'll probably continue to see throughout his work. The fucking Alamo, man. Yeah, exactly. It all it all takes place at the Alamo. Yeah, the ending takes place at the Alamo. And in the streets of San Antonio, where Tulip basically takes out all the rest of the Samsons. So himself. fucking hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Thank you, everyone, for sticking with us through Preacher, or for tuning into our episode about the last episode of Preacher. <laughs> As the case may be. <laughs> Preacher will be replaced in our docket with... Yes, in our next Preacher episode, it's not Preacher anymore. Join us for Transmetropolitan number one. But first, join us in two weeks for our roundtable discussion on Sandman, featuring our friends Ryan and Joanna from What's Lightsaber's Precious. Vertiguise is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. If you want to reach us, the email is vertiguise at gmail.com. The Facebook is facebook.com slash vertiguise. The Twitter is at vertiguise, and you can reach Sean at blankcastsean. The website for the show is vertiguise.blueberry.com, where we've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. And the show notes... They got pictures in them, folks. (laughs) In case you weren't in a reading mood. 
<laughs> well, yeah, in case you thought it was going to be so dry and wordsy. <laughs> we usually find excuses to put some classic album covers in there. It's, I mean, that's a fair cap. <laughs> if you're listening to us on the Apple Podcast app or any other podcast app, go ahead and leave us a positive rating or review. We always appreciate it, and it helps other people to find the show. Hook your friends up with Vertiguys. We'll love you for it, and I have to conclude that they probably would too. It's logical to conclude. But as always, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, everybody. So it turns out that he was counting sand on the beach. He didn't die from it. He just kept counting sand. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which was kind of hard for me to believe because like, did he, is there a point in following a command at which you can stop to eat? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. He was apparently able to build a wall to shield the sand because maybe he didn't judge that to be useful in the purpose of counting the sand. Right. It's all taking on a very like Peter Singer (laughs) utilitarianism. Yeah, exactly. Oh man, Vince Vaughn is so funny. And just, like, good. True Detective Season 2. People think he's bad in it. He is not. He is awesome in it. Well, that's a very specific point of contention. I suppose I should see it one of these days, but it doesn't sound like it would appeal to me nearly as much. There's the well, one. no, wait. I take that back, because Season 1 didn't sound like it would appeal to me in the fucking least. <laughs> right. Season 2 is considerably less appealing than Season 1, and Season 1 is horrifying. <laughs> Ha 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 ha!